How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 71 of x where I come to you uh, enchanted and sweaty because I just spent the past couple of hours stringing Christmas lights up on the uh, on the old house, and uh, which means if I ever re-listen to this episode again during another time of year, I'm going to be very, very depressed. So let's hope I don't do that. But uh, I am covered in glitter and sweat. So uh, I don't know. Maybe I belong in Excalibur or something. Anyway... Today, we are continuing our look at Wave 2 of the Dawn of X books here with a book that I almost missed. Um, I think I've mentioned this a few times uh, during our little journey here, but I try not to read the solicitations. Um, Also, I wasn't up to date with my X-Men reading, so I missed any house ads that might have mentioned this book. And as a personal rule, I stay as far away from comic book news sites as I possibly can. So this one just sort of came out of the blue. Um, I was very lucky that I was, for whatever reason, scanning the DCBS order form as closely as I was. Uh, Usually I just go, I would go to E for Excalibur, I'd go to M for Marauders, and I'd go down to the X's, you know. And uh, as luck would have it, hey, we found Hellions, and uh, that is what we're going to discuss today. This is, in fact, Hellions number one, had a May 2020 cover date. The story is called Let Them Be Snakes, written by Zeb Wells, with art by Steven Segovia. Colors by David Curiel, letters VCs Corey Petit, or Pettit, I don't know what his name is. Uh, Designs, Tom Muller, head of X, doesn't get a credit here, but we all know it's Hickman. Edits, Bisa White Sobolski, cover price $4.99, and went on sale March 25th of 2020. Now we open with, uh... Well, the return of one of those things I really didn't care for from our Hoxpox days. A mostly blank white page with just a simple quote on it. Um, this is what we might call not starting off on the right foot. But don't worry, don't worry. I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but uh, we're going to have a real good time with this book. Now we start in San Francisco, where, where a group of X-Men are taking on the Hellfire Cult. And that's cult, not club, as a rare but helpful editorial footnote informs us. Now, our team here looks to be comprised of Wolverine, Siren, Rockslide, Nightcrawler, and Havoc. And it's the anniversary of the Mutant Massacre, by the way. That, that will come up again. Now, the latter pair, Nightcrawler and Havoc, they discover a bunch of heavy artillery that the cult has come into, and they argue a bit about how to proceed from here. And I tell you what, it's actually a little bit jarring the way that Havoc... Havoc just snaps at Kurt here. Um, Now, Kurt's just trying to talk peaceably, right? Uh, Havoc is just preoccupied with the notion that, you know, all of humanity is out to get the mutants, right? 
Kurt encourages him to think more rationally, you know, not to paint everyone with such a, a broad brush here. And Alex asserts that Kurt's trying to indoctrinate him like, uh, like out of one of his Bible studies. So, uh, hey, Alex, what's up your ass, pal? Ugh. Just then, there's a big explosion which KOs Kurt and knocks Alex to his knees. A cultist enters the scene and starts acting, uh, well, as bigoted as we might assume he would act. Now this causes Alex to absolutely lose it. If he wasn't, you know, if he wasn't pulled as tight as he could a minute ago, he's absolutely nuts here. He out-wrestles the cultist and goes on the offensive, very nearly killing the man. And in fact, he probably would have if not for the intervention of Wolverine, who you know, pulls him off. He's like, what are you doing? Now, the X-Men attempt to get Alex to settle his tea kettle here, and uh, Alex himself seems very, very shocked and dismayed by his own actions. It's like he didn't know what came over him there. Now, our roll call is comprised of pretty much everyone we've seen on the cover. It's uh, Havoc, the Orphan Maker, Nanny, Wildchild, Empath, Scalp Hunter, Mr. Sinister, and Psylocke, which is to say, Quanon. Then, two pages of credits, and Jonathan Hickman doesn't get a single line in there. How about that? We spend two pages on credits, and we leave the guy out. Okay, now comics. We're on Krakoa, and the Quiet Council is in session. They're here to discuss what to do with uh, some inconvenient uh, residents, some inconvenient mutants of Krakoa. Mr. Sinister asserts that, hey, you know, if I've got to behave, then everyone else has to behave too, and uh, anyone who can't or will not abide by the laws of Krakoa, well, they ought to go into the pit, which I'm guessing is the stasis place where uh, Sabretooth is probably uh, still waiting for his appeal. Now, uh, Sinister is then distracted by Exodus's epaulets and takes him takes them as an affront to his own fashion. He doesn't like having the second tallest shoulders in the room, which... Okay, sassy Sinister, you're starting to win me over. We're then introduced to these troublesome Krakoans, and they are... Hey, stop me if you heard this one before. Empath, Wild Child, Nanny and the Orphan Maker, Scalp Hunter, and a fellow who's shrouded in shadow. But if you already saw the cover and read the first handful of pages of this very issue, you probably have a pretty good idea of who that shrouded fella is going to wind up being. From here, we get a little bit of one-on-one time with these inconvenience to illustrate why, you know, why they're here to be judged. We start with with an actual former Hellion in Empath. Now, we flash back to the Academos habitat where Manuel is, uh... Well, he's being a prick. That's kind of what he does. He's using his empathic powers to control his Hellion's teammates, and we even see him concoct a fight between Cat's Eye and Roulette. And uh, he thinks it's very, very funny to have an actual cat fight. So, there you go. Jetstream looks on, and he tries to get Empath to knock it off before his mind is changed by the hoodoo. Then, Armor and Glob Herman, they, they see what's going on, and they try to intervene, but Empath just sicks Jetstream right on him. Now, this takes us to an info page, which discusses the, quote, Empath problem. They basically describe that uh, he's a sadist and uh, try to think about ways to rehabilitate him or at least make him less less of a pain in the ass, I guess. Now, our next flashback belongs to Nanny and the Orphan Maker, and it's, uh, it's pretty cut and dry. Beast and Angel are being attacked by the Orphan Maker, who really wants his Nanny. And, well, Nanny's being kept from him, and he doesn't like this at all. Hank tells Peter, who is the orphan maker, that he's a big boy now, and he needs to learn how to take care of himself, to which Pete bloodies the beast's nose. Finally, Hank and Warren, they're like, screw it, and they release Nanny, who then sings, uh, what's his face, uh, the orphan maker, a song, and uh, 
offers to let him drink from her. Um, I can't say I'm not curious, but I really don't think we need to see that. Next, Wild Child. We see Sage and Cecilia Reyes discussing Kyle Gibney, Wild Child, and his feral nature. They're heading into his holding area to give him some pills. Uh, these are the kind that he used to get from Department H back in the long ago to keep him under control. We get a cute exchange here where Sage suggests that she created these pills like out of her, you know, supercomputer brain witchcraft, which Cecilia just totally buys, which is pretty funny. Inside the holding area, Cecilia notices some upturned soil. So she investigates and she discovers a whole bunch of pills. So it looks like old Kyle was cheeking them rather than swallowing them. Which means his feral urges, they ain't gone anyway. He's still a crazy thing. So he attacks and Sage is narrowly saved by Cecilia's force field. Next, John Greycrow, the scalp hunter. He's on a beach cleaning his guns, which apparently he does every single day. He's approached by a bunch of Morlocks who... I'm going to assume just stepped off the Rio Verde golf course, even though that's not mentioned here. Uh, They're being led by Kalisto, who isn't wearing her white knight getup, though uh, maybe she just didn't want to get it dirty. I don't know. Uh, They inform the former marauder, uh, that is the other marauder, of course, you know, the the original marauders, uh, that this is the anniversary of the mutant massacre. I told you that'd come up again. And then the Morlocks attack. From here, we jump back to the present, and we're back to the Quiet Council. Here, Storm, who is acting very bizarre this issue, we'll talk more about that later. Now, she lashes out at Scalp Hunter for attacking a defenseless group of Morlocks, which, uh, did she just read the same flashback we did? Uh, Kalisto and company were very aggressive there, were they not? I mean, they started this thing. The big three, Xavier, Magneto, and Apocalypse, they start mulling over what to do with these predatory mutants. How can they give them up, you know, these such dangerous characters? They're... In giving them paradise, are they dooming everyone else to, like, live in danger? It's, it's, you know, it's a valid question. Sinister then cuts them off with a, gonna stop you right there, which... Alright, sassy Sinister, there's another point for you, I'm starting to like you. He asks to see the shadowy figure standing in the back of the room, and naturally, it's Alex Summers, it's Havoc. Cyclops, upon seeing this, goes all Mr. Belding and gives us a, you know, hey, 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 what is going on here? Alex tells him to calm down, but Scott ain't about to. Storm tells Cyclops that this is council business and orders him to stand down. Ice cold. Gene then piles on as well, revealing that Alex put three humans in the hospital, two with lost limbs, and one disfigured for life. And, uh, hey Gene, didn't you kill all those plant critters a few issues of uh, X-Force ago? Maybe, uh, maybe you don't get much of us? I don't know. Scott turns to Alex for clarification, and, well, Alex cops to his behavior. Kurt cuts in to suggest that if not for Logan's intervention, Alex would have surely killed those cultists. Tell you what, I got an idea. Crazy idea. How about we put Havoc on X-Force? They're allowed to do that kind of thing, right? Huh? Huh? Okay, maybe not. Uh, Magneto tells Scott in no uncertain terms that had Alex managed to actually kill a human, there wouldn't even be a tribunal like this. He would just be immediately sentenced to the pit. Cyclops is ticked off, and, uh... You know, Cyclops might be my favorite, but uh, even if he weren't, I'd be agreeing with him here. Sinister then breaks the tension by suggesting everyone unclench for a minute so he can share his idea with the class. He then tells Scott to change his dirty drawers and smile, so uh, maybe that was a step too far. 
Zenister's plan is put all of these nutty outcasts to use. Now, A tires of Sinister's droning and warns that if he doesn't eventually come to his point, violence will commence. Which, I mean, aren't we talking about stemming violence? Yeah, okay. And so Sinister finally does come to this point, and if you realize that we're reading the first issue of an ongoing series which is set to feature these very undesirable characters, well, then you probably have a pretty good idea of what Sinister has in mind, huh? Sinister suggests that their expression of violence is part of their mutant birthright. You know, kind of a uh, play on they were born this way. Now, such a concept baffles and befuddles Xavier and Magneto, and they actually consider codifying this into Krakoan law. Wow. Uh, Scott does not like where this is headed, to which Gene basically tells them to shut up at his face, and uh, Storm then kicks him out of the room. The hell's going on here? Okay. Uh, Next up, info page. Uh, It's not clear immediately who's writing these uh, from a narrative standpoint. Of course, we know who's writing them. It says here that uh, Scott Summers asked for the minutes of this particular Quiet Council meeting to be looked over. I'm guessing this is Quanon's writing, but it doesn't sound like her voice, especially if if we've got fallen angels on the brain here. This sounds like a rational human being. Uh, This person, again, probably Quanon, says that, that they will act as a mentor for this team if the following criteria is met. And they are, no chance of human casualties, violent overreaction is the ideal, and the carnage of these Hellions has a therapeutic value. We jump back to comics, and Cyclops is indeed chatting up Quanon. And they, you know, they talk all about butterflies and the color purple. No, no, actually, they don't do that at all. Uh, Scott wants Psylocke to sort of kind of babysit Sinister and his unstable crew, and to keep any troubles they have in check. Quanon suggests that if there is trouble, well, they both know what she'll have to do. And Scott just asks that she go easy on Havoc, to which she really doesn't give a straight answer either way. So, our team is now assembled, and Sinister is giving the lay of the land. You know, he's giving out the orders here. Before he gets bored and hands the reins over to Psylocke, which... Okay, Sinister, you're, you're, really, you're really working me here. I, I'm, I'm liking you. Uh, Now, the first mission for this team is to head to the Essex State Home for Foundlings in Omaha, Nebraska, which uh, a lot of tenured X-Fans will remember is the orphanage where Scott and Alex grew up. There, some of the former marauders, again, not those marauders, are holed up after refusing to join up with the one mutant nation of Krakoa. This is also the clone farm Sinister used to keep remaking the marauders when they died, which, uh, you know, I I never put two and two together here, uh... But ain't that kind of what we're doing on Krakoa nowadays? Eh? Okay. So, the deal is, they're to go in and burn the place down. Sinister laments the fact that he can no longer call his old crew the Marauders, which is kind of cute. Quanon says do not engage in battle with any of the bad guys unless she gives the order. Now, Alex says he never wanted to go back to the orphanage unless it was to burn the place to the ground, so I guess at the end of the day, he's cool with this mission. Scalp Hunter and Empath get a bit of a back and forth. Uh, Grey Crow doesn't want any empathic hoodoo going on, and if he senses even a whiff of it, he won't hesitate to take Manuel out. Nanny calls Sinister a dirty man, and uh, when Sinister realizes he's being addressed by a lipstick-wearing egg, he kind of freaks out. (laughs) And it's not often I laugh out loud, but... The, fa- the look on Sinister's face when he's looking down at this friggin' weird egg with lipstick on it. 
Oh, man, that was funny. Now, Alex, he gets a bit creeped out by Wild Child's growling, which doesn't really pass my smell test, because weren't they on the same X-Factor team together back in the day? You know, this was after Age of Apocalypse, when Gibney was pretty much rendered into this exact sort of state. Very weird. Uh, Wild Child then lashes out at Scalp Hunter. Alex attempts to intervene, but is stopped by Psylocke, who assures him that they both have ample healing factors and uh, probably won't come out of this encounter any worse for the wear. They then all board a plane and head to Omaha, and uh, I could have sworn there was a gateway in Omaha. Didn't they mention that in New Mutants when they were in Pilga, that the closest one was Omaha? Maybe I imagine that, I don't know. Now we wrap up this issue at the Essex Home for Foundlings, where the Marauders, again, the other Marauders, have all been strung up by their ankles. Now someone wearing red gloves is doing some weird body horror sorcery to torture them. And we close the issue with the reveal of... The Goblin Queen herself, Madeline Pryor. That, my friends, is Hellions number one. Next episode, we'll be talking about Wolverine number two. But how about we talk about this? Uh, You know, if I'm being completely honest, I'm kind of annoyed at myself for how much I liked it. (laughs) You know, this is a book that shouldn't work. Uh, It really shouldn't, but damned if it doesn't. This, to me, before I read it, is something that I would call an Alvaro book, which probably makes no sense to anyone but me. So I'll try to explain it in brief and be as concise as possible, but this is, again, me talking, so expect a tangent, I suppose. Now, I've mentioned time and again that I was a Usenet junkie back in the long ago. Now, I'd spend hours and hours reading all the takes on the X-Men books, reading the FAQs over and over. I'd try to parse out mysteries, danglers, and aborted plot lines. And before I move on, FAQs. Do you guys say FAQs or do you guys say facts? I say facts usually, but I get yelled at when I do, so I, I try to I try to work in FAQs every now and again. Let, let, let me know in the comments. Um, now, I used to actually save longer posts from Usenet to read offline, since back then I was on a service known as America Online, which charged $4 an hour to be signed in. Um, well, with, uh, I want to say either AOL version 2.5, or maybe it was 3 or 3.5, you finally got access to the internet. You know, the World Wide Web, which might sound weird if you weren't on the internet back then, but for a time, AOL and the internet were two very different things. AOL was its own little thing, and you didn't have a web browser. You just used the... You know, the, the little areas of America Online. You, you can go to, like, the, the Wizard Magazine area of AOL. You know, keyword wizard, keyword Marvel. You didn't have web addresses. And it wasn't until this later version of AOL that you actually got, like, a web browser. Now, I mean, both were online, but you just couldn't break out. And I'm, I'm sure there were ways to work around it, but I was, like, 13 years old at the time, and I was working with a 1200 board modem and a mouse, actually, that wouldn't work when I was online. So, like, you know, you'd get the, you know, the sound when you go online for dial-up. As soon as that sound hit, I could no longer control my mouse. So I actually had to use the tab key to navigate everything, which sucked. So, yeah, I wasn't breaking out of no internet. Anywho, now, with access to the wider internet, the first thing I looked for was more comic book message boards. Since, again... It was a 1,200-board modem, and I wanted my online experience to have as few images as possible. I wanted just text, uh, because a single picture would take better, the better part of an hour to download, and that's sadly not hyperbole. 
Now, the site I found and spent most of my time on, you know, outside of Usenet, was a place called the Alvaro Comic Boards, which, you know, as I was writing this, I checked to see if it was still around, and they still exist. Alvaro Comics Boards. It's, I think it's comicboards.com or something like that. And it's so weird because it's kind of like a mind screw because I'm looking at it, and they're actually talking about Exitens there right now. And I remember when I found it, we were talking about Onslaught. You know, it's like, that's so trippy that that's still a thing that exists. Anyway, I you hang out on these boards, right? They weren't quite as deep as the Usenet bulletin boards. Usenet was usually, like, mostly used by uh, by students. You know, a lot of a lot of the email addresses would have the edu, you know, uh, suffix or whatever. A lot of students, a lot of academics on the Usenet board, so you'd get deep conversation. You get richer analysis, I guess, for a lack of a better term. But, I mean, in whatever case, I wanted more discussion, right? And these boards gave it to me. So, deep, shallow, I didn't care. I just wanted more discussion. Now, one of the things I'd see on these Alvaro boards all the time were people, like, fantasy booking the X-Books. You know, like, pulling creators off of other titles to have them write an X-Book. Putting teams together, right? And it felt like the unwritten rule of these forums was, like, that you had to out-obscure the person above you in the chain, right? People would put together teams that, like, nobody could possibly be interested in reading, just to show how wacky they could be. Like, you know, you'd see... They, they, like, they'd want to see Neil Gaiman write an X-Men book that starred the Morlock Erg, the little bird thing that sits on Cha'ad's shoulder, Lobster Boy Mimic, and Kid Dynamo from that New Mutants fan fiction. <laughs> And it's like, okay, cool, then what? And a few times I'd engage. I'd just ask what kind of stories would be told, and usually nobody nobody thought further than just assembling a wacky team. So all that to say, that's what I mean if I ever comment on something being an Alvaro book, which is exactly what I was expecting here. I mean, just looking at the cover, I mean, Scalp Hunter, Nanny, I mean, it just seems insane, doesn't it? How could this work? Why should this work? I expected to come to this discussion portion of the program and just be, like, railing against it for being LOL random and obscure for obscurity's sake. But I loved it. I loved this book. Now, now let's, get, let's get some of the things I didn't like out of the way. I did not like the coldness of the Quiet Council. This just didn't sit right with me. It didn't feel in character to me. I mean, let's look at Storm. Storm comes across as like an empty shell here. She's got no empathy for Havoc. And, I mean, Havoc is a guy she's known and stood beside for years at this point. I mean, during the, uh, during the Outback years, they were like co-leaders of the team. They know each other. She's here. She's so matter-of-fact. She treats Alex as, that he's, as though he's no different from friggin' Scalp Hunter. And, and, I mean, Scalp Hunter's a dude who was part of the Mutant Massacre. That just doesn't sit right with me. And then she also, like, flat-out banishes Cyclops from the meeting when he raises an objection. What the hell's up with that? Don't like that. Speaking of which, how about Jean? Another very cold take on one of the heart-and-soul characters in this team, right? She wasn't fair to Alex or Scott here. Uh, I didn't care for this one bit. I mean, like it's like we're almost supposed to believe that they don't know each other. Like, these are... I don't know. I don't know. It's like... I understand that the part of being part of the Quiet Council is this big responsibility on Krakoa that while you're in session should be the top priority, but 
at the same time, these are like your your brothers and sisters. These are the people who bled next to you, and it's to treat Havoc as though he's as though he's the same as Scalp Hunter or the Orphan Maker. It's like really, <laughs> that's what we're gonna do. Uh, how about Professor X here? Professor X himself. Is he so aloof at this point? Is he, like, so far above the rest of mutantdom that he wouldn't take a few minutes out of his day to maybe, maybe pull Havoc aside and be like, Hey, dude, is everything okay? I mean, they've known each other forever, right? Alex's brother was Xavier's first student, even. You would think that Charles would maybe give Alex the benefit of the doubt here, or at least, at least give him, like, a one-on-one opportunity to explain his behavior, right? And I mean, we could fall back on our old theory A here and make a guess that Krakoa is influencing some of the behaviors here. That is a possibility. That's always a possibility. That's why it's theory A. Or we could maybe go a little deeper, and maybe we can consider that Havoc is needed on this Hellions team. Uh, maybe everything is being manipulated so that he can act as a mole for Xavier on this team, That and they're keeping it quiet from everyone, including Cyclops, who, I mean, at the end of the day, went out of his way to insert his own mole onto the team in Quanon. I mean, it's possible, right? I tell you, the fact that this is just I- inspiring such analysis and deep thought on this issue, it tells me that this is probably going to wind up being... One of the sleeper hits of the run, uh, or of the line, kind of out of nowhere in, like, the Marauders vein, right? I I wasn't expecting anything from Marauders, and it blows me away month after month. And uh, I think Hellions is on the similar path. Um, So let's look at the rest of the team here. Let's look at the rest of our our Hellions team. And it's, it's a bunch of weirdos, right? And... I really don't want to refer to it as, like, the X-Men's version of Suicide Squad, because that seems like the most obvious thing to say. But, I suppose it kind of is, right? Uh, The angle here is both insane and amazing. Uh, Mr. Sinister leading a group of unhinged and highly dangerous mutants so that they can lash out violently in a productive way, all in the name of therapy. It's it's wild, and I, I really, really like it. Um... The pacing of this issue was great. I really enjoyed getting the one-on-one time with each individual cast member and finding out why they, why and how they were considered to be, you know, quote-unquote inconvenient. Uh, it was really, really well done. Um, and a little peek behind the curtain here. Zeb Wells is a writer who, back around the turn of the century, I wanted to hate. Uh, <laughs> I think the first time I'd even heard of him was part of a Wizard Magazine contest where I think he either wrote a script or he sent in a homemade movie or something. And I'm sure at the time I was probably just jealous of, like, the guts and the stick that that took. But I really just wanted to dislike him. But damn it, everything I've read with his name on it I've absolutely loved. And uh, this issue, uh, if it's not made clear, is, is no exception to that. This was really, really well done. Uh, the Madeline Pryor reveal at the end, that made total sense. As she's, you know, a well-defined link between Sinister and Havoc. Sinister, of course, created her, and Alex was romantically linked with her before Inferno. I'm very interested to see how they play this out. And I'm also very happy to see all the nods to continuity here, which I really wasn't expecting. So I guess there's another thing that this book has in common with Marauders. Uh, The art here uh, was mostly good. Mostly good. A little uneven in places, 
where it veered a bit into the realm of cartoonish, but it was always pleasant to look at. It just, you know, maybe a little uneven. Overall, I mean, if I didn't make it clear, this is a goodie. <laughs> this is one to check out. I know our friend Andrew Franklin uh, mentioned that he'll be starting to read along with this very issue, and I'm, I'm so happy that it turned out to be such a fun one. I would give this issue a very high recommendation, and uh, at this point, I can't wait for the next issue. It's going to be a, it's very rare where I actually have to like kind of hold myself back from peeking ahead, and this is one of the situations where I'm holding myself back just uh, for the sake of the show. So check this one out. Check this one out. It's really good stuff. But uh, before we go, let's dip into the mailbag here. We're going to start with Damien, who's talking about cable number one. He says... This issue is much more enjoyable than I expected. I've never really found Cable to be an interesting character. A lot of it is down to my feeling back in the day that his arrival ruined the New Mutants. As a teenager, I loved Rob Liefeld's art, and I just couldn't understand why everything fell apart. Obviously, from a 21st century perspective, I can see that the issue was that Rob and Louise Simonson were pulling in two different directions, and that that was the problem. I still dislike Cable, though. And you know, Cable was never a character I, I really got while growing up. Uh, I remember a lot of my friends were very taken with the guy and thought he was the coolest thing ever. I remember we started collecting the Marvel Series 3 uh, trading cards and uh, we 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 didn't want to buy them at because the comic shop had them for like three bucks a pack. And this is going back to 1991, 1992. And they were, they were $2.99 a pack at the comic shop. But if we went to the drugstore, like two doors down... They were 50 cents a pack. So we discovered that, and we bought a handful of them and ran like we stole something because we were just like, there's no way they could be this cheap. Anyway, uh, out of the uh, my first pack, I got a cable card. And my buddy was like, oh, my God, you got cable. And I was like, so what? <laughs> and he, he thought it was just the coolest thing in the world. And and it's like, it's like maybe if it was a Wolverine card, you get excited. But a cable card? Well, you know, I, I just didn't get it. I probably wouldn't get Cable until, like, the Joe Casey run on the solo book. But, I mean, that was a very different Cable than what we got at the uh, tail end of the New Mutants. And I, I think I mentioned before, I wasn't reading New Mutants. And actually, I never read an issue uh, of New Mutants, the first volume, when it was current. I came in after X-Force was around, so I wasn't there for New Mutants. And I've only read it as a you know, reading project, you know. And I found the entire volume to be wildly uneven, which, I mean, isn't an indictment on the book itself or anything. It's, uh, I mean, that's just comics in general are pretty uneven, I guess. New Mutants would go from, like, really, really high highs to really boring lows and back again. And again, that's not unique to this book or anything. So I don't know that I saw, like, a like a big-time spill-off post-Cable because... It was just a pretty wibbly-wobbly thing quality-wise the whole ride through. So it was just another lull for me. Uh, Damien continues. As for this new younger Cable, my only exposure to him is Fallen Angel, so I wasn't keen on his new series, even with such a strong creative team. And yeah, same here. Um, I know he was the star of the pre-Hoxpox X-Force book, so X-Force Volume 5, uh, which I've been collecting in bits and pieces when I see an issue cheap, but I haven't yet gotten around to reading it. So, uh, yeah, just like you, my only I only really know the kid from Dawn of X, X-Men 1 and 2, and Fallen Angels. 
I was not expecting much here. Uh, despite the fact that Duggan has been killing it on Marauders and, uh, and that Noto is Noto. So this was a very pleasant surprise. Uh, Damien continues. All that said, I loved this issue. Every element worked, and reading this was a joy. Is it just me, or has Phil Noto got considerably better? He was always good, but this blew me away. And yeah, Noto is fantastic. Um, I remember, I think the first time I saw his work, that I realized it was him, or real, you know, put the two and two together, I was shocked at how great he was during a semi-recent run on She-Hulk. And this was... Uh, at, like, the dying days of Marvel putting out $2.99 books. Because I remember they made a big deal out of this volume because, uh... This was... When was it? Must have... Oh, man, this may have even been, been longer ago than I even remember. Um... Yeah, this was pre-New 52. Or this was probably right around the New 52. Or was it... Yeah, this makes for good radio. Me stumbling over myself trying to remember things. I think it was during Brightest Day. When DC was uh, drawing the line at two ninety nine, so it was probably like the summer of twenty ten or summer of twenty eleven, and they made this big announcement at New York Comic Con that uh, all their books were going back to two dollars and ninety nine cents. And uh, Marvel, not to be outdone, said, uh, "Yeah, us too. Uh, <laughs> we're gonna every new book we launch is going to launch at two dollars and ninety nine cents." And uh, so they launched like like a half dozen books that all made it about six issues <laughs> and they went away and we were back up at four dollars and one of them was the she-hulk book and uh and noto's work was unlike anything i'd ever seen on a comic um but even with that said this is somehow even better than that um noto makes this book feel more special than it had any right to it's just you can tell it's something special when you look at it uh, damien continues you discussed in the feedback the possible end of the Hox Pox Docs era. There's a big part of me that would love a reboot of the Marvel Universe, as there's so much accumulated continuity that I would like to remove. Unfortunately, whenever reboots happen, you're left at the mercy of who does the reboot. There's always a risk that we'll get the Marvel version of replacing Wally West with Barry Allen, and I can't face that. And yeah, that's true. Um, I would never... You know, that whole... <laughs> In case of in case of emergency, break glass and do the reboot. Reboot. I would never break the glass. Um, I feel like continuity is more of a tool than a crutch. And I mean, there's a lot of stuff that happened that I don't like. You know, um, there are things that you know. Part of me, if I had the magic wand and could just say, "Okay, Chuck Austin never happened," you know, I I, I still wouldn't do it. You know, I still wouldn't do it because. I feel like inconvenient history is still history. Um, everything that happens matters, you know? Um, and, I mean, there are efforts to do that, to, to you know, get rid of real-life history, right? I mean, things that are inconvenient and that make us look like horrible people, uh, which, you know, I guess at the time we were, um, there are steps being taken to sort of just erase history. And I... I I don't agree with that either. I like to I like to see things as a progression of how much better we are now than we were yesterday. And uh, similarly with, with comics continuity, you know? I mean, okay, here we are, and Nightcrawler is the son of Draco the Devil. It's like, well, crap, I don't want to deal with that, but can I make it work, right? I mean, I don't know, I... I I, I, I have very strong feelings about continuity and making sure everything is still 
everything is still there. Bad, good, whatever. Everything still matters. Um, I think about DC and how quick they they are to just they, they break that glass. You know, it's like, ooh, we screwed Hawkman up. Okay, break the glass. You know, let's erase him. He's gone. And they do that over and over and over again because. They try to restart things, and they try to get rid of the inconvenient bits of history, but then they start working themselves back in because they're part of the character, like, intrinsically, right? I mean, you pull Superman out of the Legion history, but you still have to get him there, you know? And and, and that part is still there because we can't let go of it. Despite the fact that we want it gone, we can't let go of it. And, uh... I feel like I feel like everything can work. I don't think we're ever painted into a corner uh, insofar as continuity. Um, someone far smarter than me once said that uh, continuity can be distilled down to context plus consequence, right? Context is everything that happened. Consequence is what happens next. Um, I feel like for inconvenient bits of continuity, just don't mention them. Don't mention them um, because... There's going to be someone who's going to come along. If the comics industry makes it, someone will come along who can make it work. I know Jeff Johns could be a divisive uh, creator, but, I mean, going back to Hawkman, Jeff Johns came in and made it work. He, he waved the wand that made everything matter and everything work, and uh, I, I feel like continuity... I, I never want to get rid of it. That's <laughs> what I'm trying to say. And, uh, you know, if that ever did happen... You're absolutely right. We'd be left dealing with whatever, with the vision of whoever Marvel considered to be the flavor of the day. And uh, to be completely honest, that's actually one of the problems I had with Hickman early on. You know, I read Secret Wars number one, which ended with a tombstone for the Marvel Universe on the last page. It said something like Marvel Universe 1961 to 2015 or something. And that got under my skin big time. I, I was thinking, I'm like, who the hell is this guy? You know, who is this guy to be able to do this? I mean, I looked at... I I even did research, which was stupid, because all it did was get me madder. I looked at Hickman as a guy who created nothing for the universe, outside of derivative characters and interchangeable boring aliens. And I'm thinking, like, they're letting this guy have the last word on the Marvel Universe? I mean, it got under my skin. Clearly, it got under my skin. Uh, And any... Anytime I see a creator who saves their best stuff for their creator-owned work, which I totally understand, but if that's the case, you don't get the end of Shared Universe. You just don't. In, in my world, you know? I mean, say what we will about Liefeld, and we do, but dude had skin in the game. He created characters. He added to the universe. He wasn't creating the 8th Robin or the 45th Earth, you know, Earth-bound Green Lantern. I mean, Hickman, at this point, he gave us antler-headed aliens and Smasher. That ain't skin in the game <laughs> to me. And uh, it really, really annoyed me that Marvel was going to just let him do what he did. So, yeah, I, I have uh, strong feelings on continuity, I guess I can say. Uh, I, I like things I like things just being kept the way they are. And if, if you are going to be given the keys to the castle, then put some skin in the game. You know, Marvel's making an investment in you. You make an investment in Marvel. You know, get get out of here with the uh, Antler Aliens and Smasher and, and create something that doesn't start with Spider hyphen or Iron hyphen or hyphen America. Give me something new. Hyphen Marvel. Give me a new character. Give me something that can be made into an IP. And uh, 
then maybe I'll be cool with you restarting universes. But uh, yeah, I wasn't expecting the discussion to go into that. Uh, I apologize. <laughs> but thank you so much, Damien, for your thoughts. Um, next up, Andrew Franklin is talking about X-Force number nine. He says, regarding Domino's resurrection, now that was interesting. Up until now, I felt that the cases of the characters acting unlike themselves were just a byproduct of the new direction and had more to do with the writing than any in-story reason. But it's undeniable that something has happened to change Domino between this issue and when she was with Colossus, and it was very creepy to see such a difference in attitude so soon. I like this development, and I'm glad we got something more substantial than vague teases. I hope that it's Colossus who starts to investigate things further. I feel like Peter is often underserved by ex-authors, and this would be a very cool role for him. And yeah, you're 100% right. And, you know, I was thinking back when I read this to try to think if there was a time where I felt Colossus was being handled right. And I don't think anyone since Claremont left the first time handled Colossus right, unless I'm missing an obvious... Uh, an obvious time, moment in time. Um, you know, when I started coming into the fandom, he was just uh, sort of there. You know, he was just a background character on the gold team. Then Ilyana died, and he joined the Acolytes. Then he joined Excalibur. Then he rejoined the X-Men, where he was just kind of there again. And then he died. <laughs> it was just a... It was a sad... The 90s were a sad time for uh, poor Mr. Rasputin. But yeah, I would definitely like to see him be the one who starts examining, like... What did Nightcrawler say? Like, uh, that there's already cracks in the foundation. You know, if we have Colossus looking into these cracks, uh, I, I feel like that would give him direction, first of all. And it all might it also might be like a coping method for him. You know, he's, he's still got this trauma that we still don't know everything about yet. So I, I think that would be a pretty cool thing for him to do. And uh, also, I, I also want to see Domino's new lease on life explored. It's very interesting stuff, which... I mean, might just start turning up the heat on the resurrection protocols a bit. Because uh, nobody's asking questions except, you know, for a few people. And they're not asking the questions to anyone who can answer them. So maybe uh, maybe the heat's about to be turned up. I, I sure hope so. Andrew continues, Obviously, Xavier's involved in some way, but I think that ultimately Mora is the one masterminding this whole thing. She's seen things go very wrong time and time again and has revised her plans with each life. So whatever's happening now must be her way of ensuring that the mutants come out on top, no matter the cost. Perhaps in this life, she intends to ensure that the mutants come together as one people far sooner than in her other lives. And if that means rewriting their personality so everyone's on board, I'm sure she thinks the ends will justify the means in the face of genocide. That's a great theory. That's a great theory. And, uh, you know, and one that's kind of been backburnered uh, on, uh, in the books and on the program, you know, the Mora effect. You know, I feel like it's been far too long since we've checked in with her. And uh, I tell you what, that's something I both really like and really don't like because, you know, Hickman and company are treating us readers kind of like Xavier and company are treating the mutants of Krakoa. You know, we're being kept in the dark just like them. Like we know that there's something afoot, but they're not just not going to let us in just yet. So that's uh, that's a pretty cool thing and on a meta level. But I definitely think you're onto something. Uh, and, I mean, I couldn't have said it any better myself. Mora, she's seen so many instances where genocide was inevitable. This might just be her pulling out all the stops, pushing, you know, ethics and morality aside, just in hopes that maybe 
this, the unification, might be the thing that saves them. That's, a, that's an awesome, awesome theory. Uh, Andrew continues. I also like to shout out the Cosmic Treadmill episodes on the whole Seduction of the Innocent story to anyone who hasn't listened to them yet. They're a fantastic history of that time period and the trial that gave birth to the Comics Code and changed comics for decades. If anyone hasn't listened to the Cosmic Treadmill, do yourself a favor and start. It's an amazing show. And thank you. Thank you so much. Um, the the Code show, the Code the, the code series, actually, is five episodes. Um that yeah, if if you haven't listened to them, you know, do do me do me a solid and <laughs> and listen to them. Uh, we we would refer to certain shows as ten pole tent pole shows, you know, um, the ones that really like s- establish the foundation for the show. And it's funny, it, it's funny and uh, maybe not funny in the ha ha sort of way, but just the way things turned out. The uh, our tent pole episodes. Of Weird Comics History, which is what we started with, are the very first series, the middle series, and the last series we did together. So if we were to actually, you know, draw them, it would look would look kind of like a tent, which is a little poetic. Um, and uh, these, there were three shows, three series of shows that we really wanted to use as our foundation. And uh, those were, of course, the Comics Code, which we started with. Uh, we did a five or six part series on underground comics, uh, like you know Robert Crumb, uh, the whole 1968 movement to uh, San Francisco, that whole thing. That was in the middle of our run of weird comics history. And then the direct market. We did a two parter on the direct market from beginning. We talked about like paper boys, you know, and how periodicals are shipped, and those were uh, those were our tentpole episodes, and uh, they were the biggies, and. Uh, those were the ones that were were to set the tone, really, for what we set out to do. And, uh, you know, on the subject, uh, it's worth noting that as I'm recording this, uh, just last night, actually, the uh, the Chris and Reggie channel just broke 100,000 downloads, which is insane to me. Um, and, you know, in, in a far better timeline, uh, uh, I'd be, you know, popping a cork with my friend today to uh, celebrate. But uh, it, it's... It's a hell of a thing. It's a hell of a thing, and uh, I shared that on various social medias today. And uh, Reggie's mom smiled. You know, she saw it, and she was very happy to uh, to see that uh, that we broke that many downloads. So that that's a cool thing. That's a very cool thing to me. Um, it, of course, there's a better timeline out there that I wish I was living in, but uh, it's still a very cool feeling. Um, Andrew wraps up with, Well, until Krakoa is revealed to be a Cobra plot to drive shipwreck insane, make my next lapse. And uh, thank you so much for uh, the kind words and for uh, sharing your thoughts. I, I'm, I'm really digging hearing from you. It's really cool to, to pick your brain here and see how you're, how you're enjoying this. And I really hope you enjoyed Hellions. All right, I'm looking forward to hear your thoughts on, on Hellions here. Uh, next, Mark, Green Lantern HG, has a comment about uh, From Claremont to Claremont, Episode 3A, where we discussed X-Men Volume 2, Number 3, from 1991. He says, This was a good old time. It was like reading it all over again, and I gotta tell you, this was back when I was deep into X-Men, so for me, that was the death of Magneto. Anyway, great episode, Chris. Well, thank you so much, Mark. Um, yeah, this was my first death of Magneto, so for me, it was the real one, too. <laughs> when he showed up again... Uh, I was kind of taken aback because 
I was still new to the comics thing here, and to me, dead meant dead, which is... I was a sweet summer child, I guess. Um, and I'm hoping to get more of these from Claremont to Claremont segments out over uh, the next several weeks. I've got probably like a half dozen of them in the bank right now, so... Hopefully, uh, you know, I'll get those out, and hopefully I'll also be getting back into, you know, the recording room with my friends again uh, very shortly to continue on these episodes here. Uh, It's such a wonderfully weird era for the X-Books that I remember just so fondly, and it's, it's a lot of fun. And, you know, before I released this one, I was actually a little bit nervous about it, because there's a thing that... I get stuck on. Um, I I call it. I remember I wrote a uh, piece for some creative writing thing a while ago that was about letting go of the opus. Um, I think if you're a creative type person or a fake ass creative type person like myself, you have visions, right? You you know what you want. You're setting out to do. If you, if it's writing a story, if it's putting together a production, if it's drawing a picture, you have this perfect thing in your mind. It becomes your opus. It's the thing you have to do. And sometimes you need to let it go because it's holding you back. You're a prisoner of it. Um, and I, in releasing segment this in segment form, I was breaking away from my original vision for From Claremont to Claremont because even when it was just a shower thought, you know, even when it was just me listening to another show and thinking, I could do this with the X-Men. You know, it was always going to be this ridiculously long monthly show. <laughs> uh, friends of mine kind of raised an eyebrow at that because, uh, you know, when I when I told people what I had mind, it's like, oh, cool. Ooh, cool. OK, yeah, maybe maybe that'll work. I don't know. And I was just so dead set on doing it my way because it was my vision. It was what it had to be. And uh over time, that turned into one of those like House of Cards type of situations. Because for an episode of From Claremont to Claremont to actually happen, a whole lot of pieces had to be like perfectly slotted in place. Um, it's no exaggeration when I say that the first two episodes of the show took a combined 300 or so hours to do from Soup to Nuts. Which, I mean, that's a lot of time. That's a huge investment. But... It was the vision. It was the opus. It was what it had to be, right? So it was what it was going to be. Uh, and like I said, this was like the very worst of shower thoughts with little to no consideration for just how difficult and demanding this was going to be. But here, doing segments, yeah, sometimes a fella's just got to know when he's beat, especially when he's beating himself. Um I'm hoping that these uh, From Claremont to Claremont segments make for fun listening, and I hope to continue them into the future. Uh, And like I said, maybe it was last episode, uh, at the end of the day, there were no rules here. You know, I don't know why I'm so unflinchingly rigid with how I want things to be. I force rules onto myself. But, really, there's nothing saying I can't compile these segments into a giant-sized show after the fact, right? I can put these out in segments, then put them out again as a big deal like I had envisioned in the first place. It ain't no rules, so it's just me, really just me getting out of my own way. Um, but thank you so much for uh, for listening to that, uh, Mark. I'm glad you enjoyed it, and I'm glad it took you back to a uh, to a simpler time. 
Uh, next, Evan Bevins has a question for Damien. So, Damien, this is for you. Evan says, I cracked up a while back at Damien lamenting that American comic readers might think that the British are protected from Selkies and Druids by Captain Britain and the Queen. But then I wondered, if not them, who does protect the British from Selkies and Druids? That's a valid question, right? So uh, we're, we're, we're awaiting your answer there, Damien. I tell you, it, it absolutely tickles me when, when people comment to each other in, in the in the in the feedback here it's just wonderful but uh love the question evan and i, I can't wait to hear your answer damien if <laughs> if you haven't chewed a hole in your in your cheek I, I hope to hear your answer uh very soon now we're gonna wrap up with a uh an email that uh, i'm going to try not to not to interrupt the way that i usually do here this caught me this caught me completely off guard i woke up to this one today and uh, it knocked me out. It was a—it's uh, a very special email. Um, uh, this is from Nicholas, and I'm like I said, I'm going to try not to interrupt it, uh, just to read it out as it is. Nicholas says, in response to your call for feedback in episode 61 of X-Lapsed, I wanted to provide you with a note from The Void. I am one of the silent listeners that usually doesn't provide much feedback to the content you create, but I'm breaking the silence to say you rock. While I truly appreciate and do listen to probably 90% of your other content you released, I have found myself really enjoying your X-Lab show. It's hard to imagine that it's now been running for months at this point, and it's hard to imagine I would be so captivated considering I haven't read a single page of the comics you outline each day. When it comes to X-Men comics, I enjoy them at a distance. I like the concept of the X-Men. I appreciate that readers like the X-Men. I like the X-Men cartoon show, and I like the X-Men movies. Sorry about that. That was him, not me. Uh, Every time I have tried to jump onto one of the titles in the last ten years, I just haven't been able to latch onto the characters. They've either been too snappy and quippy, like when Bendis wrote them, or they've been too bogged down by all the interconnected characters and stories like the X-Men color era. I was so ready to give Hoxpox a try, and then got cold feet when I saw the release schedule and heard the rumblings of what was to be Dawn of X. I knew I would never keep up with all the series. Then, in the midst of a crazy year, you brought us X-Lapsed. And while I'm not a lapsed X-Men reader myself, I appreciate the enjoyment this new line of books has brought you and the X-Fan community. I think you've been going almost daily on these episodes, and yet still are a few months from catching up to the publishing timeline. It's amazing. My favorite series so far has to be Marauders, by far. Hearing you talk about Call Me Kate and the Hellfire Club, the backroom deals and the subterfuge, it seems like the issues have been fulfilling for you as a longtime reader. And my least favorite, favorite series so far has to be New Mutants. The whole idea of the X-Men going into space is what threw me off the Bendis era books a few years ago. My favorite aspects of your X-Lapse adventure so far have to be 1. The far-out theories and hot takes 2. The ability to dismiss your least favorite series with a few jokes before you pivot to engaging with listener mail. 3. Your callbacks to Apocalypse as A. And 4. Your dedication to seeing this project through. I could tell you I would have personally abandoned Fallen Angels and one or two of the others, but you've soldiered through and delivered the complete Hox Pox Docs commentary track. And by contrasting the awful with the exceptional, your enjoyment for the exceptional carries the show each episode. When I see Excalibur in an episode title, I think, man, Chris may be in over his head today, but maybe he'll be surprised by some nice character interaction or a return of some a long-forgotten bit of continuity. 
So please continue to deliver your witty commentary on this line of X-Men comic books. Perhaps it's the fact that I have no horse in the race that lets me enjoy the show, but I always appreciate your personal and well-thought response to each issue. Keep up the great work and try not to go too crazy waiting for the next shoe to drop. Wow. Uh, thank, uh, thank you. <laughs> I wasn't sure I was going to make it through it. Um, Nicholas, that... that I can't even put into words. Um, thank you so much uh, for that. Uh, that was such a an unexpected pleasure to wake up to this morning. Um, th- thank you. Uh, and I, I, I hate going into the whole sappy thing because I do it all the time, but uh, yeah, putting together a show could be lonely. And it, in doing this show, it isn't so lonely because there's such great people who are part of this journey with us here. And... Uh, it means the world to me. It I've said it before, it means too much to me. So, Nicholas, thank you. You've you've made my week. And this is Thanksgiving week. So, I mean, that's saying something. <laughs> but thank you so so much um for listening and for reaching out. It, it you really you, you really made my day. Thank you so much. Now, uh uh ooh, yeah. So, thank you. <laughs> But uh, if anyone else out there would like to reach out and uh, share your thoughts on uh, the books or the show or anything, please feel free to do so. Uh, you could reach me very easily. I'm at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You, could see, you can see... I'm slurring my speech here. I'm sorry. You can see show notes and blog posts over at ChrisIsOnInfiniteEarths.com and also XLaps.ChrisIsOnInfiniteEarths.com. You could chat with us about... Well, anything you want at 90s X-Men on Facebook, and you can listen to the entire Chris and Reggie audio archives. Now, we, we've proudly served over 100,000, uh, well, maybe not 100,000 people, but 100,000 downloads. Uh, and, and I'm a realist. I know there's a lot of uh, a lot of bots in there, but we don't talk about them here. But uh, you can hear all of that stuff at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Oof, I still haven't recovered from that email. <laughs> But uh, I think that's where we'll put a pen in there for today. Uh, we are, I think we only have one book left for Wave 2, and that'll be X-Factor, which we'll be getting to probably not too long from now, but uh, soon enough. Soon enough, we'll have all four of our Wave 2 books under our belts here, and uh, looking forward to it. So um, I guess we'll put a pin in it here, and uh, one more giant thank you to everyone for, for hanging out and sharing your time with me. And uh, it has been a very crazy year, so... I appreciate appreciate everything. So thank you so, so much. And uh, till next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.